Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 91, Heaven Lasts Forever. As you recall, this episode was supposed to be an interview with Steve Jeffrey. Uh, if you recall, he and I uh, debated hell on Unbelievable a number of months back, and today he was going to join me to uh, to discuss post-millennialism. <laughs> Boy, that's hard to pronounce. Post-millennialism. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I got an email from the, from him this morning. He had an emergency, and, and we had to reschedule to about a month from now. Uh, and so in the meantime, I've got something else to uh, put in its place. Um, Mike Felker, a friend of mine uh, who has appeared on my show twice in the past and has started his own podcast at ApologeticFront.com, has been participating in a modular debate with a Jehovah's Witness named Fred Torres. Um, They've recorded their opening statements and their first rebuttals, which you'll hear today. And yesterday we recorded an hour's uh, worth of cross-examination, which I'll publish in the next episode. Uh, They're working on their second rebuttals now. Uh, At which point I'd like to pose to them some listener-submitted questions, just like we often do in debates here at The Apologetics. So I'm going to play these portions of their debate now um, with one or two episodes following that on some other topics, and then return to the debate so that you'll have the context and information necessary to come up with good questions to pose to Mike and Fred. Uh, So for the background, the... the, um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there's a uh, class of Christians that will live forever in heaven with Christ in the eternal state, uh, whereas the great multitude or second class of of Christians uh, will um, live forever on earth. Uh, And so the debate proposition, which this Jehovah's Witness named Fred Torres is affirming, uh, is this, all Christians in the new covenant will live forever in heaven with Christ. And Mike Felker, who takes the historic Christian view that uh, Christians will spend forever on earth, uh, a new heaven and a new earth, but earth nevertheless, uh, he'll be denying that resolution. So uh, please listen to this debate and or this, these opening statements and first rebuttals, and then in the next episode, listen to uh, cross-examination and try to come up with some good questions to pose to them both. Uh, this is a little bit of a unique debate, I think, uh, the content of it anyway, and so I think that this will, uh, I think that listening to this will serve um, to give you the context that you need to come up with really good questions. Uh, you can email those to me at theapologetics at hotmail.com, and I'll make sure to uh, pose the best ones that I can to. Mike and Fred uh, after their uh, second rebuttals. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and we'll play today's promo uh, for my friend Dee Dee Warren's The Preterist Podcast. Hi, this is Dee Dee Warren of The Preterist Podcast, where I discuss biblical prophecy without the hype and sensationalism found in many evangelical circles. So if you would like to learn a different yet completely orthodox way to view things, such as the Great Tribulation and the so-called Rapture, please have a listen. The podcast can be found on iTunes and many other podcasting directories, or can be found directly at preteristpodcast.com. 
Do check out Didi's The Preterist Podcast at preteristpodcast.com. You can also check out the wealth of resources that she's made available at preteristsite.com. And you can check out uh, her blog at preteristblog.com. Um, I've really appreciated the opportunity to contribute here and there to the Preterist Blog and Podcast. Um, and I also really appreciated the uh, excellent job that Didi did moderating my debate with Joshua Whips in the previous episode. So I thank her for that. I thank her for her, her podcast. Uh, and I definitely commend them to you. So with that, let's go ahead and move into uh, today's first part of the debate between Fred Torres and Mike Felker. Hello to all. Uh, my name is Fred Torres and uh, it's my pleasure to be able to uh, have this debate discussion with Mike Felker and um, I'd like to thank Mike Felker for agreeing to participate in a discussion of this nature and uh, also I'd like to thank Chris Date for agreeing to host this uh, debate discussion. I'm certainly grateful to both of them and also to uh, those of you listening as well. Um, I am one of Jehovah's Witnesses and um, I have uh, interacted uh, several times in the past with Mike Felker and each time has been a very pleasant experience and um, I respect his views, I respect uh, his convictions, I think he takes um, his faith seriously. I respect that and I appreciate that about him. So. I felt this discussion could be worthwhile uh, for um, for him and and for and th- those listening uh, as well. In uh, this uh, discussion, I will affirm in the positive that all New Covenant Christians will reside with Christ uh, for eternity in heaven. And the reason why I affirm that. Uh, proposition is because I believe that Christ himself will reside in heaven forever uh, alongside the Father. And I believe that for several reasons. Uh, And uh, I believe the Bible teaches that Christ himself will reside with with God himself uh, in heaven for eternity. One of the scriptures that comes to mind Um, in this discussion and in this uh, proposition is Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 and um, in this uh, debate discussion I will be using the New American Standard Bible and uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 says have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I believe this uh, scriptures teach that uh, in fact the purpose of the Son of God taking the likeness of men or the appearance as a man was for the point of him giving his life in sacrifice. In fact, sacrificing his body uh, on behalf of mankind. And uh, having having succeeded and having accomplished that, upon his return to heaven, uh, he will return again alongside the Father where he has always existed. As we know, John 1, 1 through uh, 3 and other some of the other verses uh, teach that, in fact, the Son of God, the Word as he is called in John chapter 1, pre-existed the Incarnation. And uh, hence, the scriptures speak of him, of, of those days, as the days of his flesh. So, in, in the long scheme uh, of things, the overall scheme of things, the earth has existed for a minuscule amount of time in comparison to how long the universe itself has existed. And again, from my perspective, and also uh, that, that he existed alongside, that the Son of God has existed alongside the Father even before the universe was created. So countless of epochs, eons and eons of, of epochs, of time have passed. And hence, the Son of God has always existed alongside the Father. And in whatever fashion or form, in metaphysical way, that that, that is, what we do know is that at that time there was no earth. There was no, there was no planet earth. There was no, no humans, obviously. Hence, he, he existed in a, in a glory, in a heavenly glory, in, in, a, in a way that, that is not in the likeness of man, in the appearance of a man. And uh, again, that, that, that brings to mind another passage in the Bible, which I believe uh, concurs with that notion, that, that thought. In John chapter 17, verse 5, as Jesus was praying to the Father, uh, he he says, "Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was." And again, before the world was, there were no men; there was no appearance of men. What glory did the Son of God have before the world was? Well, he was a spirit creature. And this is a very simple concept, and uh, this presentation itself will be very simple, because I believe this is something that the Bible teaches in a very simple way, that since the Son of God has always existed uh, alongside the Father, not on earth, but rather in heaven, that upon returning to heaven and His ascension, after having sacrifice his body and given up that body uh, in sacrifice 
that uh, in returning to heaven he will have he will return with the glory which he had before the world was certainly that would exclude a physical body and a body that would be designed to live on the planet earth with its with a atmosphere environment and the limitations of the human body and so um, without getting into a uh, discussion of hypostatic union and other theological concepts that may be incidentally related to this idea I uh, I believe again that that Christ Jesus will in the glory that that he had before the world was is currently in that glory which means that he is a spirit creature spirit creatures live in heaven humans live on earth a simple concept that I believe the Bible teaches and I believe also that it's common sense as well because again it's it's clear that the earth is designed for human life and vice versa heaven was created by God for spirit life for those that uh, are uh, invisible to human eyes but are living as well living beings and so I believe again that the scriptures clearly teach that Christ will live alongside the Father forever uh, for uh, again uh, in heaven as he did before the incarnation so hence I do believe the incarnation was a temporary uh, abode for the Son of God with the purpose of taking on human flesh and sacrificing that flesh that body for the benefit of mankind and I believe the scriptures clearly teach as well that um, Christ himself when resurrected when he was resurrected by God he gave his life that um, that the scriptures teach again New American Standard Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 45 says so also it is written the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And so, again, I believe it's a clear teaching. Uh, there's no a- ambiguity on what Scripture is saying. That, again, the Son of God, having always been a spirit, and being resurrected as a spirit, became a life-giving spirit as the second Adam and so that's the the first uh, proposition uh, in defending my affirmation that that all uh, New Covenant Christians will reside with Christ in heaven for eternity and uh, the second proposition uh, in this defense is that this, I believe again the scriptures clearly teach that all New Covenant Christians upon resurrection will um, reside with Christ forever but the scriptures have already established uh, in my view uh, 
that he is in heaven and he will remain in heaven because that is the glory that he had before the world was. And uh, there are many scriptures, of course, that, that I believe uh, teach this uh, in the Bible. Uh, for example, uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 2 through 7, um, I believe, again, this is one of the passages that, that very clearly uh, they very clearly teach that, in fact, um, New Covenant Christians that their reward is uh, in heaven and uh, that their inheritance is in heaven and not uh, on earth. Um, in verse, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verses 5 through, through 7, says, um, Even when we were dead, in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show that the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here, of course, we have a, the notion that, uh, of course, that uh, the, the, the certainty of the resurrection, speaking of, of it as if it's already occurred, uh, where it says that, Christ raised us up with him and seated, seated us with him in heavenly places. Uh, and then in verse 7 says that that uh, in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So of course in the first century uh, even my opponent uh, will concede that uh, after his after re his resurrection, Jesus Christ was in heaven with his Father, and so this scripture teaches that also in the ages to come, he will he, again he will show the surpassing riches of his grace uh, and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the uh, resurrection. Of the of of the uh, new covenant Christians uh, occurring, uh, whether it's in this world or in the next, certainly places Jesus Christ in those heavenly places. What are those heavenly places in the first century? Well, in the first century again, Christ Jesus is in heaven with His Father. So that also again in the ages to come. Likewise, he will be seated along with those resurrected with him uh, in those heavenly places. And that is, I believe, what the, the scripture teaches in, in, in verse uh, 7. That in the ages to come, he might uh, show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. So if he was uh, in the... Uh, if that was true in the first century... That Christ was in heaven, uh, seated in heavenly places, alongside the Father, He will also, uh, likewise, uh, that is also true, in the new system, in the new world, or as the Scripture here in chapter in verse seven says, in the ages to come. Not in the present one, not only in the present one, but also in the um, in future ones as well.
in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse, verse 18. And there's another passage in the Bible that I think I believe clearly teaches that the first uh, that the new covenant church including those obviously in the in the first century the first century Christians uh, that their hope their inheritance um, was also uh, for for the for the heavens and I believe that is I'm sorry that is that is not in first Peter that is in in first uh, Peter uh, chapter 1 beginning with verse 3 which says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ of Jesus Christ from the dead verse 4 says to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you so again i believe this this uh, again this passage here uh, teaches very clearly that the inheritance is um, reserved in heaven and that it, that means that it's in heaven uh, that is the inheritance that the New Covenant Church uh, holds to and has held to since the first century. That their that their um, their hope was not on earth, but reserved in heaven. And I believe this is one of the scriptures that that clearly teaches that. It's interesting because if the scripture said that the inheritance was reserved on earth. I believe that that would be something different from what it says where it clearly says that the inheritance the actual inheritance the inheritance is not something that is temporary the inheritance is everlasting life and the everlasting life according to this particular passage it says it's reserved in heaven for you meaning that it's in heaven again if the scripture said the inheritance is reserved in earth I believe my opponent would say that the scripture would teach that the inheritance is in earth but because the way the wording is phrased there's really no way of understanding this particular passage other than to simply believe what it says which again is that the inheritance itself the promise is um, reserved in heaven meaning that they will have everlasting life not on earth but in heaven so um, again I believe the scriptures are very clear in this regard that the new covenant church in the first century and even today uh, that their hope is to live forever with Christ in heaven the scriptures uh, teach that Christ himself will live with God forever in heaven thus it makes sense it follows 
that the new covenant church, living with Christ forever, will be in heaven with Christ and with God. And as we uh, as uh, we have seen here, these passages, among others, teach that the in in very clear fashion, I believe, that the inheritance of the new covenant church is in heaven for eternity, and that other language that can be found in the Bible can be interpreted in different ways and can mean and can uh, can uh, be understood in different ways because there's a lot of symbolic language in the Bible. But again, I believe scriptures such as these and others do teach that all New Covenant Christians will live forever with Christ in heaven. Thank you. I would like to first thank Chris Date for uh, hosting this debate, and I would also like to thank uh, my opponent, Fred Torres, for agreeing to debate the subject. In light of the fact that I had some pretty negative experiences with my uh, last Jehovah's Witness opponent on a similar debate topic. Uh, but Fred is someone that I have come to respect and had some good interaction with in the past, and I trust that this debate will be no exception. Uh, the proposition for this debate is stated as follows. All Christians in the New Covenant will live forever in heaven with Christ. And to the surprise of many Christians, I will be denying this proposition because I believe the scriptures clearly teach that not only are all true Christians in the New Covenant, but none of them will live forever in heaven. Instead, the scriptures teach that all Christians will rule and reign as kings and priests with Christ on the new earth for all eternity. But before I explain my position, let me state from the outset what I am not denying. First, I'm not denying that Christians can go to heaven in what is traditionally referred to as the intermediate state. And while this topic is not and should not be a point of contention in this debate, I only bring this up because Fred will have to do more than display a text that may imply that Christians can go to heaven in some sense. So he will actually have to prove that the scriptures teach that these new covenant Christians will go to heaven and stay there forever. In addition, I'm not denying the idea that heaven and earth become one metaphysical reality, as some Christians believe. And while I do not find any explicit scriptural support for this position, I don't necessarily deny it. But what I will say is that it is unscriptural to contend that Christians will live in heaven forever in a distinctly separate location from the earth. And with that said, in this debate, I will defend three basic contentions in denying the debate proposition. First, Abraham's seed includes all true Christians, and they will live forever on the new earth. Second, all Christians are in the new covenant. And third, Christ will live forever on the new earth. First, Abraham's seed includes all Christians, and they will live forever on the new earth. In order to establish this point, let's go back to the original covenant promise made to Abram in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. 
In this text, Jehovah tells Abram to look in all directions, and everything he sees will be given to him and his seed forever. In addition, he was told that his seed would be so great in number that they would be like the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky. And when the promises uh, were originally made, it would only be for a small portion of land, but in time, Abraham's seed would expand to the point of his seed inheriting all the nation's land in their possession, as Genesis 22, verses 17 through 18 tells us. It says, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. While it may seem that these texts in isolation would support the notion that Abraham's seed is limited to his physical descendants, we know from other texts that this is not the case. Romans chapter 9 verse 8 tells us, It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. But who are the children of the promise? Well, Galatians chapter 3 verse, 9, verse 29 tells us, It is those who belong to Christ. However, the watchtower's position, which my opponent holds to, informs us that only a select group of Christians can be Abraham's spiritual seed. But this is directly in contrast to what Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 tells us. Therefore, it will be my opponent's burden to show how someone can belong to Christ, as Galatians 3.29 tells us, yet not be one of Abraham's seed. Also consider Romans chapter 4 verse 13. In this text, we are told that Abraham and his seed would be heirs of the world, or as some translations render it, inherit the world. Romans 4.13 is also consistent with the original promises made to Abraham where he and his seed would inherit the land. And this would come to be fulfilled uh, eschatologically when their inheritance would encompass the entire world. But how do we know that Romans 4.13 is speaking of Abraham's spiritual seed and not his physical descendants? Well, the answer is found in the condition of the promise. And that is, inheriting the world comes by faith and not through the works of the law. So, how are these points relevant to the debate proposition? Well, my opponent believes, as uh, the Watchtower does, that all who are Abraham's spiritual seed are in the New Covenant. But this presents a problem, because my opponent also believes that all of these New Covenant spiritual descendants of Abraham will live forever in heaven rather than on earth. So, in order to maintain this position, he would have to show that the promises made to Abraham find their fulfillment in living forever in heaven. However, I contend that there is far more consistency in the scriptures for an eternal dwelling place on the new earth. And consider the Abrahamic promises in light of the following text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are the gentle, 
for they shall inherit the earth. Now notice that Jesus doesn't provide any qualifications other than the ones mentioned in the context. If inheriting the earth doesn't apply to the New Covenant Christians, then how would my opponent prove this? Otherwise, he would need to prove that those who inherit the earth will not actually be on the earth. Next, we turn to Revelation chapter 22. And if I understand my opponent's position correctly, he believes that the bulk of this chapter is exclusive to a select group of New Covenant Christians who will live in heaven. But this interpretation is especially problematic because the descriptions indicate that it must also include the great crowd mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. The problem is, my opponent believes that the great crowd in Revelation chapter 7 will live forever on the earth. Therefore, he can't have it both ways. Either the great crowd in Revelation chapter 7 is in heaven, or the scene depicted in Revelation chapter 22 is on the earth, which would also have to include the great crowd. So let me provide a few reasons why this is the case in comparing Revelation chapter 7 uh, to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 7, 9 tells us that this great multitude is from every nation. And Revelation chapter 22 verse 2 tells us that these nations have access to the tree of life. Revelation 7 verses 9, 11, and 15 uh, tells us that this great crowd is standing before the throne. Revelation 22 3 tells us that the throne is in the city. Revelation 7 uh, verse 9 and 13 and 14 has the great crowd in washed robes. Revelation 22:14 has these ones in washed robes which gives them access to the city. Revelation 7.15 has the great crowd serving day and night in the temple. Revelation 22.3 has these ones serving God as bondservants. And since Revelation 21.22 tells us that God and Christ are the temple, then these ones in Revelation 22.3 must be serving in the temple as well. And last, Revelation 7, 17, uh, the great crowd is guided to the springs of the water of life. And in Revelation 22, 1, this river is said to come from the throne, which is supposedly in heaven, according to my opponent. Now, is it just a coincidence that there is uh, this kind of connection between the great crowd in Revelation 7 and what is depicted in Revelation chapter 22? Well, according to my opponent, if I understand his position correctly, the great crowd simply cannot be in the same location, much less be the same group described in Revelation chapter 22, which is supposedly a separate group in heaven. The second contention I will be defending in this debate is that all true Christians are in the New Covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 33 through 34 will provide us with details as to who will be in this New Covenant. 
But the main detail I want to focus on is the last sentence in verse uh, 34. It says, I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now, if this is true of all Christians, then all Christians are in the new covenant. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, as well as in the parallel passage in Luke 22, 19, alludes to the new covenant described in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, which was just read. But here, Jesus provides one very specific condition by which one can have their sins forgiven, and that's the new covenant. Therefore, if one is not in the new covenant, then their sins cannot be forgiven. Yet, my opponent would have to believe that the great crowd mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 has their sins forgiven. As it says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But yet, my opponent does not believe that this group of Christians is in the new covenant. So how can Christians receive the benefits of the New Covenant without actually being in the New Covenant? And can my opponent provide any biblical support for this position? We shall see. Now, being in the New Covenant not only provides uh, the only means by which one can have their sins forgiven, but it also gives believers direct access to the Father. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, describes Christ as the high priest who acts as mediator so that Christians can draw near to the throne of God with confidence. Now, interestingly, the author of Hebrews provides us with reasons for which all Christians need Christ as their mediator rather than specific qualifications that can only be said of a specific class of Christians. And some of these reasons include sympathy for our weaknesses and receiving grace and mercy. Well, does Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 apply to the great crowd mentioned in Revelation chapter 7? Well, if it does, then my opponent would have to deny that the great crowd will live forever on earth or prove that Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 cannot apply to them. Next, we have another indicator by which believers can have Christ as their exclusive mediator, and that's in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And more importantly, it tells us that only by drawing near to God through Christ as mediator can one be saved. Otherwise, how can one be saved if Christ isn't able to make intercession for them? The author of Hebrews provides no other means by which a second class of Christians can have their sins forgiven, much less make any mention of that second class at all. Therefore, my opponent would once again have to prove that the great crowd can be saved without Christ as their exclusive mediator, or deny that they will live forever on the earth, since he believes that texts like Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 only applies to those who go to heaven. My last contention I will be defending is that Christ will live forever on the new earth. Acts chapter 3 verse 21 tells us that heaven must receive Christ until the period of restoration of all things. 
This means that this period of restoration is that when this period of restoration is over, Christ will no longer be in heaven, which consequently means that he will be on the earth. But will the return of Christ be visible and physical? Acts chapter 1 verse 11 tells us that Jesus will come back in the same way as the disciples watched him go into heaven. And since the disciples watched Jesus physically, visibly, and bodily ascend in heaven, then he must visibly, physically, and bodily descend from heaven to the earth. Now, if Jesus stays in heaven and never physically returns to the earth and stays there, uh, then there are several texts that are difficult to explain. Consider uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Luke 14, 15, Luke 22, 16 through 18, and Luke 22, verses 29 through 30. Collectively, all of these texts have Jesus inviting Christians to eat bread and drink wine at his table in the kingdom. And notice this. This is Jesus referring to the current establishment of the Lord's Supper to be continually shared with one another even after he has returned. And this is far more in support uh, to the notion that Jesus will return to this earth physically, visibly, and bodily to fellowship with Christians for all eternity. Otherwise, is my opponent going to maintain that Christians will eat bread and drink wine at a table in heaven? Such a position seems difficult to explain in a location on earth actually makes more sense. Now, the point in my bringing this up is to further deny the debate proposition, for my opponent has the New Covenant Christians being linked to their belief that Christ will never visibly, physically, and bodily return to the earth and remain there forever. Therefore, if it can be shown that Christ does, in fact, live forever on the earth, then my opponent's position no longer holds water. In my opening presentation, I have set out to defend three basic contentions in denying the proposition that all Christians who are in the New Covenant will live forever in heaven with Christ. Unfortunately, I was not able to hear my opponent's opening uh, before providing mine, but I trust that it will be an adequate response. And I suspect that he will be providing texts that he believes will support the idea that the New Covenant Christians will live forever in heaven. However, given the opportunity, I would like to show that these texts do not support this and better support my belief and uh, what I think is the biblical position that all Christians are in the new covenant and will live forever on the new earth. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this uh, second part of the debate, the opening statement rebuttal. And first I'd like to uh, offer my compliments uh, to Mike uh, for his opening statement. I thought he brought out some great points and uh, some, it will make for an interesting conversation. Uh, but I, just a quick observation before moving forward, and that's that Mike essentially concedes uh, a significant point in his opening statement, and that's that he does not rule out uh, heaven and earth as uh, becoming one metaphysical reality. And uh, again, that to me, that essentially becomes just an issue of semantics, what name or nomenclature we assign to the uh, this one metaphysical reality where God the Father, quote-unquote, resides. Um, 
Certainly nothing in the scriptures would prohibit a Christian from calling that one metaphysical reality heaven. Um, thus, I, I, I can see that he essentially has conceded that point, that, that um, he does not deny that notion, and it really just becomes an issue of, of semantics. And, um, and another interesting point in that regard is that the standard and level of evidence uh, that he um, is willing to uh, accept in, in not denying that particular notion, to me that's interesting, because he's willing to uh, consider that as a possibility in light of the absence of explicit express statements in the Bible. And I wonder if you'll accept that from, from my arguments as well, uh, that uh, perhaps some things may not be expressly stated, but can be argued in some way as well. And he can accept that as a possibility as well, and not simply deny it. Moving forward, though, with his uh, with the presentation, uh, Mike brought out three different points. Only one of the three points directly um, is a, an attempt to deny the debate proposition, which again is that uh, New Covenant Christians will live or reside with Jesus Christ in heaven uh, for eternity. Um, regarding the Abrahamic Covenant, we both agree that it is fulfilled uh, in large part with the natural Israel, which of course produced uh, the main portion of the seed, the Messiah, uh, and that the spiritual Israel uh, Abraham's spiritual seed is brought together by the new covenant uh, and uh, the new covenant of course uh, is uh, involves the forgiveness of sins um, based on Jesus on faith uh, of Jesus sacrifice and um, however Mike has put many of his proverbial eggs in in one basket if you will because he has opted to focus on the wit uh, beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses as uh, some type of denial of the debate proposition. And unfortunately, because he doesn't correctly understand key points regarding um, my views of this matter, much of his argument in this part is null and void, simply because he's based, basing himself on a misunderstanding. Um, an example of this is the fact that he does not understand that Luke 22:29 is the actual promise of the kingdom uh, and not the new covenant per se. Right? The new covenant, of course, again, uh, is replaces the old one in regards to the way the the, the animal sacrifices where we have Jesus, of course, ransom sacrifice, um, and then of course the promises of the old covenant are fulfilled in the in in the in the new covenant many of the prophecies are fulfilled there uh, but the actual promise of ruling uh in ruling over the earth in the kingdom is found in Luke 22:29 where God has granted um Jesus a kingdom and then Jesus in return grants uh his apostles his his followers um a kingdom so right, the new covenant is between God and the spiritual seed, and Abraham's spiritual seed, and the this second covenant, the second agreement, if you will, is between 
Jesus and the apostles. So it's a separate, separate agreement, it's a separate covenant, if you, if you will. And so, again, because Mike does not understand that and bases his argument on the notion that it's the new covenant promises that will provide the, the basis for the kingdom, uh, the ruling uh, over the earth uh, through God's kingdom, because he doesn't understand that and bases his argument on, on that, on a misunderstanding, uh, I believe wasted a, an opportunity here to directly... Uh, deny the debate proposition and, and he, he doesn't do that because one he doesn't understand my beliefs in this regard and then build his argument um, on that misunderstanding again the question is does ultimately does the New Testament church inherit heaven forever his, his first portion here does not offer a um, denial of that neither does the second portion uh, whether or not there are new, I'm sorry, whether or not there are Christians outside the new covenant is besides the point. It does not answer the question of whether new covenant Christians inheriting heaven, do they or do they not? Well, what I believe uh, in this regard as far as being, as far as there being Christians outside the new covenant is irrelevant. It is, it is not proof in any one way or in, or the other, so in my opinion, um, I believe that this particular part of the argument should stand on its own. If that's the standard of, of evidence that that my opponent, my esteemed opponent, wishes to put forth, then um, I believe that it's significantly flawed and weak, and thus I believe should stand on its own merit and should be evaluated as such. And yes, for the sake of discussion, I do believe that that. Um, knew that there are Christians outside the New Covenant. Uh, one example is the thief that was executed alongside Jesus. He was a new, he was a he expressed faith in, in Jesus. He was forgiven directly by Jesus, and he was told that he would be with Jesus in paradise. But again, that's really besides the point. The third point um, is that, um, and this is the the only one that directly attempts to deny uh, the debate proposition. And that's as Jesus, uh, he, uh, Mike believes that Jesus is raised in physical bodily form. And his objection is based primarily on the appearances uh, of Jesus to his apostles. Even, or even uh, Jesus even shows his, his wounds and, and appears to them in different ways. However, um, the scriptures clearly show that spirits uh, can have flesh and bones in some metaphysical way. And um, one example is Genesis 19.3, where uh, the angels appear to Lot, and you know they have their feet washed, they eat, they sit and speak, and they're visible. They socialize with with um, with Lot and, uh, and the family, and um, so yes, um, spirits can have flesh and bones; they manifest themselves. Uh, in Jesus' time, however, unclean spirits. Uh, were quite evidently not able to do that. And so, for example, when Jesus appears to the apostles in one particular occasion, um, they think they're frightened. They think he's a spirit. They're, they're frightened. They think they see a spirit. Well, that's what they, they think they're seeing a bad spirit. 
Uh, and that's in, uh, also in harmony with Mark chapter 6, verse 29. And, um, and in Acts chapter 16, verse 18, there's a good example of a spirit. Um, is, uh, the word spirit being used in, in this particular sense. A spirit being um, a frightening uh, spirit because it's an evil spirit. Acts 16, 18, it's a demon that's possessing a young girl. And so when, um, initially, when the apostles see Jesus on, one, on, on this occasion, they're frightened. They think he's, they're seeing a spirit, an apparition. And so he, uh, Jesus demonstrates that he is not an evil spirit. And so when, when, um, when Jesus says that spirits do not have flesh and bones, of course, he is, of course, clarifying that he is not an evil spirit. And so, yes, Jesus uh, is correct that he is not a spirit. And he is speaking of being a bad spirit. And that is, again, an example that shows that Jesus was clearly only manifesting himself in some, in some metaphysical way that he could be, he could be uh, seen by his apostles. So, uh, the, the notion that Jesus is raised as a spirit uh, remains uh, solidly true and remains untouched uh, by my uh, opponent's comments in the opening statement. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank my opponent for his opening statement and rebuttal, and I look forward to the discussion ahead. But before I go into addressing Fred's arguments, I'd like to first review the three contentions that I am proposing to deny the debate proposition that all New Covenant Christians will live forever in heaven with Christ. First, Abraham's seed includes all true Christians, and they will live forever on the new earth. Second, all true Christians are in the new covenant. And third, Christ will live forever on the new earth. While my opponent believes that only one of these contentions explicitly denies the debate proposition, I would encourage the audience to please go back and listen to my opening. There, I offer very specific arguments and explain why each proposition denies the debate proposition. And I believe that by doing this, you will see that my arguments were completely relevant to the debate proposition and that they were largely untouched by my opponent. And perhaps as time allows, I will have the opportunity of representing some of those arguments to show why they are relevant to denying the debate proposition. In my opponent's opening, he offers several arguments surrounding Christ's pre-incarnate state and his ascension into heaven. With John chapter 17 verse 5, my opponent believes that because Christ lived with the Father in heaven before the incarnation, then he will live forever in heaven when he returns to the Father since he will be returning to the glory that he previously shared with the Father. But this argument is largely correct, except for one part, and that's that Christ lives forever in heaven. Nowhere in John chapter 17, verse 5, does it say that Christ lives forever in heaven. And this is something that is read into the text by my opponent. Instead, the text simply states, that he returned to the glory that he previously had. 
and there is nothing in this text which could deny the notion that Christ could one day return to the earth to rule there forever with his followers. Next, my opponent brings up Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, and argues that if it was true in the first century that Christ was in heaven, in the heavenly places, alongside the Father, then it is true in the ages to come. But this argument assumes two things. First, that the heavenly places being spoken of is exclusive to heaven. And second, Christ does not or cannot return to the earth. If heavenly places is exclusive to heaven, then I believe my opponent will have some difficulty in interpreting several other scriptures. First, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 speaks of the heavenly gift that is tasted by those who were once enlightened by the Holy Spirit but fell away. But did these ones go to heaven to experience this heavenly gift? Or did they experience it while still on earth? Well, clearly they experienced the heavenly gift while on earth. And likewise, there should be no reason to deny that the heavenly places mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 could be experienced on the earth, even if those heavenly places are currently in heaven. And I'll address this point further when I discuss 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 through 4 in a moment. Second, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16 speaks of the heavenly city that God is preparing for the old covenant saints. And surely, this heavenly city isn't different from what is being spoken of in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And if it's not different, then this presents a problem for my opponent because he believes that none of the old covenant saints will be in heaven. Instead, he believes that they will live on the new earth, as I also believe. In regards to the second point whereby my opponent assumes that Christ does not or cannot return to the earth, he doesn't take into account that Christ returns to the new earth to establish his kingdom in its fullness. In light of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16, would not the new earth be of the heavenly places that is being spoken of in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6? Also, consider the fact that Ephesians 2.6 is in the past tense. Yet, Christians are said to have already been seated in the heavenly places while still on earth. So even aside from the arguments I've just made, the past tense of this verse seems to go against my opponent's interpretation. But more importantly, his position assumes that the heavenly places cannot manifest themselves on the new earth. Next, my opponent raises 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 4 and interprets this verse to mean that new covenant Christians will have everlasting life not on the earth but in heaven. But notice the text does not say that. Instead, it says that the inheritance is reserved in heaven. And with this, my opponent assumes that this reward stays in heaven and can never come to the earth. However, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, Christ tells us that he is coming quickly and his reward is with him. But where is Christ coming to? 
In light of the arguments mentioned in my opening statement, I believe the Bible is clear that Christ is coming to the earth. Therefore, the inheritance that is reserved in heaven will be brought with Christ when he returns to the earth. In my opponent's rebuttal, he mentions that I don't understand his position as it relates to the new covenant and the kingdom covenant. But notice that in my opening statement, I did not ever once define the new covenant and the kingdom covenant as the same thing, if I understand what my opponent is suggesting. But even if I did, I hardly see this as a relevant point because my opponent did not address my key argument regarding the land promise that is to be given to Abraham's spiritual seed, which finds its fulfillment in Romans chapter 4 verse 13, whereby they will be heirs of the world. Not once did my opponent address these points by which I believe I clearly demonstrated that the eternal hope for Abraham's spiritual seed is the new earth. Therefore, if it can be shown that Abraham's spiritual seed will live on the new earth, as I believe I have shown, then the debate proposition will have been successfully denied. The reason being, my opponent believes that all of Abraham's spiritual seed are in the new covenant. The last points I'd like to address is related to the second coming, which my opponent believes was the only one of my three contentions that was relevant to the debate proposition. However, he didn't address any of the arguments or scriptures that I brought up on this point. Instead, he incorrectly asserted that my, quote, objection is based primarily on Jesus' appearances to his apostles, unquote. But you'll notice that I never addressed Jesus' post-mortem appearances. Instead, I argue that key texts like Acts chapter 1 verse 11 and chapter 3 verse 21, among several others, clearly show that Christ will one day leave heaven and return to the earth. And until my opponent can refute these arguments, this contention alone would successfully deny the debate proposition, even if my others fail. But even for the sake of argument, I'm willing to grant that my opponent's position that Christ was raised as a non-physical spirit. The reason being, even if Christ was raised as a non-physical spirit, even my opponent acknowledges that he appeared to his disciples in a physical form. Therefore, why couldn't Christ one day return to the earth in the physical form? And in light of Acts chapter 1 verse 11 and chapter 3 verse 21, I believe this is the inevitable conclusion regardless of what you believe about the resurrection body. And with that said, I would once again ask the listeners to please re-listen to my opening presentation and decide for yourselves whether or not my points were directly related to the debate proposition, as I believe I clearly explained how they were and defended them accordingly. And hopefully in the discussion following this section, my opponent will be able to address some of my arguments that weren't addressed in his opening or rebuttal. Thank you. All right, well, that was part one of their debate on where Christians will spend eternity. Uh, in the next episode, you'll hear part two, and by then I hope you'll have sent me your questions, which I'll submit to them during listener Q&A. 
Until then.